0: Given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the life of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time that we have had to focus upon the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and his work and what he has done for us. And now as we open your word and continue our study uh, based on these verses in Ephesians 4, quoting Psalm 68, uh, going through the Old Testament to understand the background for this gives us such a more robust picture of why the Scripture emphasizes that we are uh, have been raised together and seated together in Christ in the heavenlies and that he is seated at the, your right hand. Help us to put these important revelations, Revelations together, that we may understand that they really should transform our whole understanding of who we are and our purpose in life. Today, we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. All right, we are continuing our study in Ephesians chapter four, where we have been looking at this quotation that Paul brings in from Psalm sixty-eight referencing Christ's ascension to heaven and why that is here, why it's so important. This is the second time in this epistle that Paul has referenced our ascension and the fact that we are seated together with Christ in heaven. That's our legal position. It has to do with our identity because we're members of the body of Christ. The scripture says using this physical bodily metaphor And that is what Christ is building when we look at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit is building this temple, another metaphor used to describe uh, the body of Christ and who we are. And why is this emphasis there on our identity with Christ and his being seated at the right hand of the Father? So we're looking at... First of all, five messianic prophecies. We've looked at Psalm 68. We'll be looking at Psalm 110 this morning. I was hoping we could get to Psalm 2, but I know with communion and the luncheon that ain't happen, I'm realistic. But then we'll put together, and it's interesting how statements that are made and verbiage that is used in Psalm 110 connects to Psalm 2, and they both also intersect with Daniel 7. It's so fascinating how God builds these things through vocabulary and statements and images so that through the study of the word, we can connect these dots. And it's not just something that you think of as as some something that, that I've come up with or something that is somehow, uh, in some ways, it's unique to the church and the church age, but even the rabbis in the in the late years of the period before Christ and at the time of the beginning of the church, that first, second, third century, recognized that there were these, these intertextual connections between these messianic psalms, between Psalm 2, Psalm 110, uh, Daniel 7, and various others that, that I'll allude to as we go through this. But this is of course, they weren't quite sure what all of this meant but they knew that there was something there that was going on in the text that was messianic. Now, as we've studied before what happens by the time you get to about a 1,000 A.D., that you have two or three significant rabbis who come along and invent a new way of interpretation of a lot of these uh, passages that had always been understood by the Jews to be messianic and to interpret them in a way that they either applied to the whole uh, uh, of Israel, all the Jews, or they weren't messianic. And that, that that they changed the meaning. And one of the ways they did that, uh, that, that can be illustrated is because in the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text that our Hebrew Bible is based on, the Jewish Hebrew Bible is based on, uh, the original text did not have vowels. It's just consonants. And in order to preserve the pronunciation, the Masoretes had invented a way of... Sh- putting vowels in there that were indicated by little dots and dashes. And what happened is that if you just change the dots and the dashes to different vowels, it would change the word. And it could change the word from something that was clearly messianic to something that wasn't. When we get into the third verse of Psalm 110, I'm going to retranslate the last part of it because it's clearly messianic. But the way it's translated in English Bibles and the way that's translated in in the Jewish Tanakh and others, uh, it makes no sense whatsoever. But it's obvious. So obviously Messianic that that the Masoretes just changed the vowels and it changed the whole passage. So just remember that when we get down to verse 3. So we're looking at these Psalms. And then we're going to be talking about these terms that show up, Son of Man, Son of God. Son of David, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, and what those titles mean. Third, we're looking at, we'll touch on this more next time, the Davidic covenant as the foundation for all of the above. In Second Samuel 7, 7-14, to where God promised to David that one of his descendants would sit on the eternal throne of Israel. And that indicates that that the one who sat there would have to be one who is eternal. It couldn't be someone who is just human because all hum, no human humans eternal. But this would be an eternal ruler. And then last, that this ruler would be a priest king. So therefore, he wasn't going to uh, be from the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priest. He would be from another tribe. And this is established in this uh, Psalm, Psalm 110.4, talking about you will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who is a Gentile priest king. And all these things really come together to help us with where where we are as as Christians. So we saw that in Acts 1-9, along with the end of Luke and the end of Mark, there is a statement about Christ's ascension into heaven. The fullest statement is in Acts chapter 1 that the disciples watched Jesus as he received into heaven. He doesn't blast off on his own. He's in his human resurrection body, but he ascends, he is taken up, and received by a cloud often when God is pictured, he is in a cloud. Many, many times the term cloud in the Old Testament is associated with the presence of God. So he ascends Uh, into heaven, into a cloud, as is depicted in uh, Bondone's picture of the ascension of Christ. Hebrews says he passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That phrase, the Son of God, emphasizes his deity. Because in the Hebrew mindset, if you're going to describe somebody, if they are a fool, you would call them the son of a fool. Because they are a product of foolishness. If they're a murderer, they're described as a son of a murderer. Okay, doesn't mean their father was a murderer. It means that they are characterized by that that first noun. So if you, someone is called uh, the son of Belial, it means that they are a destructive person. If they're called the son of man, it means they're a human. If they're called the son of God, it means they're God. That's the focal point of that. So that we have these passages that refer to the Son of Man and refer to the Son of God, and one emphasizes his humanity. That is the most dominant title you'll find for Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels. He is the Son of Man. That was his favorite term to use referring to himself, emphasizing his humanity. And he is also the Son of God. So we come to Ephesians 4, 7. Uh, through 9, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And then Paul is going to explain this because what he's doing is he's not saying this is a fulfillment of that because that wasn't a prophecy. He's saying that is a picture when the when the ark of the covenant in this procession was taken up onto what we refer to as the temple mount that when the ark is taken up there in preparation for what would be built later the temple and at this time it's just put into that temporary uh, tent called the tabernacle and that that this was a triumphal procession to picture the fact that god had triumphed uh, finally triumphed in, and uh, over the Canaanites, and this land and this nation was stable under David, and established established his kingdom. Uh, tribute was brought, and gifts were given to the to the uh, brought to the temple to be given to God. What happens in, Dave, in uh, Paul's application is that now Christ is in the place of God, emphasizing that he understands that Jesus Christ is God, Jesus of Nazareth is fully God because it is He, His name takes the place of God's name in the uh, quote from from Psalm sixty-eight eighteen, and that instead of receiving gifts, Christ is going to give gifts to his church. That's the background. We looked at this on Psalm 68, 18. Instead of you have ascended on high talking about God, it is applied to Christ. He is the one who ascends on high. And this whole psalm was written about this procession, this victory procession and taking God uh, to the uh, Temple Mount. And we went back and saw the passages in Second Samuel related to that. So this is the order of events. There's the ascension of Christ described in Psalm sixty eight eighteen and Ephesians four, seven and eight. Second, he is at the conclusion of that ascension event, he is seated. That's what we're looking at right now in Psalm one hundred and ten. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then he is in Psalm two, we'll connect that and he will be told to ask for the kingdom so he hasn't asked for the kingdom yet we're not in, in the kingdom in any way shape or form then he's granted the kingdom that scene is portrayed in Daniel 7:14 and then he will return to the earth and defeat the kings that's referenced in In uh, Psalm uh, 2.9, it's also referenced in Psalm 110, 5 through 7, and, of course, in Daniel chapter 7, and then he will establish his rule upon the earth. So that's the framework that we're looking at here. Now, the significance of Psalm 110 is that it is a messianic psalm that is related to the sitting of the messianic Lord, that English word session that I use that's become a theologically uh, technical term is from the Latin word sessionum, which refers to being seated. So that's what's described here in the first verse. In this uh, psalm, five things are going to be brought out in relationship to this future, uh, to what's happening during the present Messianic uh, session and what will happen in the future. And then we'll connect that to Psalm 2 and the rebellion of the kings of the earth against God and his Messiah. And then in that and these other verses, we'll see the authority that is given to the, to the Messiah to suppress the human rebellion against God. And then last, God will tell the messianic king in Psalm 2 to ask, and he will give him the kingdom. So we look at Psalm 10, 110. And when we look there, we see the superscript at the top that says that this is a psalm of David. Uh, this is a, the best argument for the psalm of David. But we also know that, that in the New Testament, uh, when Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, he says that it is uh, David's psalm, and also when it is cited in ver- various places in the book of Acts. David is cited as the one who authors uh, this psalm. And so what this psalm is going to teach us is that the descendant who is here referenced, when we read in the first verse, the Lord, that is in all caps, that is a reference to the uh, name of God, the sacred tetragrammaton, a word that means four letters. In Hebrew, it's Y H W H. And that that is referenced, uh, always translated with the uppercase Lord. So you have Yahweh there speaking to a person that is referred to by David as my Lord. David's got the greatest kingdom on the earth at this point. Who's greater than David? And we'll see that, that uh, a couple of things about this when we get further on, that this, indi- this individual is also stated to be divine. And that this person is exalted to the right hand of God in the second part of the verse, uh, sit at my right hand, and then he will be given authority eventually and power to destroy his enemies. That's going to be brought out in verse 2, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule, that's a command to him, rule in the midst of your enemies, Then in verses 3 and later in 5 and 6, he will go forth in battle in the last days in order to uh, conquer his enemies. And at the very end, uh, in verse 4 rather, it is stated that he will be a priest king. The Lord, that is, Yahweh has sworn and will not relent. You speaking to the one referred to by David as my Lord. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to um, the order of Melchizedek. Now, Michael Rydelnik, in the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, talks about this issue of Psalm 110 as a Messianic psalm. And he says, uh, Psalm 110 has long been understood as a direct prediction of the Messiah. And I've referenced the fact that, that even among evangelicals, there's debate as to what prophecies are messianic. And many will say this is the only one that's messianic, and that's as a result of the influence of liberalism over the last hundred years because traditionally many, many were taken to be messianic, just as if you go back and read through uh, the Targums and the Midrash, they will refer to uh, various psalms as messianic. Psalm 110 has long been understood as a direct prediction of the Messiah. Even Franz Delitzsch, who's a uh, well-known German-Jewish scholar, a Christian, who generally viewed the Messianic character of the Psalms to be merely typical, recognized Psalm 110 as a direct Messianic prophecy. In his commentary on Psalms, he wrote that in Psalm 110, David looks forth into the future of his seed and has the Messiah definitely before his mind. Alan Ross, who spoke here at the Chafer Conference a couple of years ago, was one of my Hebrew professors and was uh, extremely influential in not only uh, my life and my studies and my understanding of Hebrew and the Old Testament, but also Randy Price, you know of Randy Price, and uh, Alan Ross uh, spent his time, a lot of his time studying uh, rabbinic theology when he was at Cambridge. And he writes in his uh, commentary on Psalm 110, the apostles saw how the exact meaning of the psalm applied to him, that is, Christ alone. Uh, from the perspective of Jesus and the, the apostles, David received a revelation from God in which his descendant, his Lord, would be exalted to the right hand of God and given the power and the authority to put down all his enemies. This descendant would go forth in the day of battle with all his armies who willingly offer themselves for his service. So the question then comes up, is this psalm a direct prophecy of Messiah? And just to let you know, there's controversy over this among evangelicals. I don't agree with them. I think these are problematic scholars, not good scholars. Tripper Longman says no psalm is messianic in the narrow sense. He just rejects messianism totally. Herbert Bateman, who is a uh, graduate of Dallas, written a number of uh, books, says, David did not speak the psalm to the Messiah, the divine Lord. In contrast, Tom Constable, another prophet, Dallas, said this is a prophetic messianic psalm that describes a descendant of David who would not only be his son, but his Lord. That's the historic position it's, it's not the modern uh, position among Jewish rabbis since about the 10th century, but it is, you go back and you read the ancient Targums and Midrash in the early part of this era, uh, that would refer to, uh, they would all see many of these psalms as me- messianic. That's what David understood. If you look at Psalm second 20, uh, Samuel 23, 1, uh, the w- way it is translated, uh, I've... Uh, is now these are the last words of David. Thus declares David the son of Jesse. Thus declares the man, and it's translated as raised up on high using um, the the Hebrew preposition is al and it could refer uh in, in a couple of different ways, but the Septuagint translated it with the word epi, meaning concerning. That's a different idea. Thus declares the man raised uh, up concerning, raised up concerning uh, the Messiah, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, as I've translated it at, at the bottom. So when it's taken in the sense of the Septuagint, which was translated by Jewish rabbis about 200 years before Christ, from the Hebrew to into Greek, they understood it, that David was writing about the Messiah. Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai said that every prophet prophesied only of the days of the Messiah in Berechot 34b. And it fits the context because you have three psalms that precede Psalm 110. You have three psalms that come after it. The three Psalms before, Psalm 107, 108, 109, are all pleased, pleased to God to rescue them, to deliver them. Psalm 110 talks about the messianic deliverer who will come. And then Psalm 111, 112, and 113 talk about praise for God's provision of a deliverer. The psalm is broken down into three sections. In the first section, Yahweh will exalt his messianic king to his right hand, a position of power and authority, where he will await the defeat of his enemies and the establishment of his kingdom. The second section, Yahweh vows to make the messianic king a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek in verse 4, which is a hinge verse. And then in the last Three verses, Yahweh will give the Messianic king a mighty and glorious victory over his enemies, followed by a time of refreshment and exaltation to a position of honor and dominion. So that's that's the ma- basic idea. So this phrase at the very beginning, which says a Psalm of David, that's used over 55 times in the Psalms and always indicates Davidic authorship. Uh, Alan Ross comments that not many modern day scholars would be willing to say that david wrote it they don't even want to admit david lived but we know from one inscription that was discovered that refers to the house of david that that gives legitimacy to the uh, to israel's belief that there was an ancient king by the name of david and then jesus christ states in his uh, con- conflict with the Sadducees in so- Matthew twenty two forty three and uh, twenty two forty three and forty four. He says to them, questioning them. They're questioning him about. This is when they come up with that that uh, just that that fake story about the woman who was married to a man and he died, and then she married a brother and he died, married another brother he died, the marriage, and finally this uh, the seventh one dies. And the Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection said, well, who's going to be her husband in the resurrection? And Jesus just un- undercuts them. First of all, he says, how does David by the Spirit call him Lord? And then he quotes from, from this, particular book, uh, this particular verse. So this is uh, just, all I'm quoting this for is that this is, he, he believes David wrote this. So it says, David's David, I mean, excuse me, uh, the first verse begins, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That first Lord, as I said, is the proper name of God. It's the sacred tetragrammaton Yahweh said to my Lord, my Adonai. And so this term, For Lord means, I am who I am, as God explained in Exodus 3.14, uh, when Moses said, Who shall I say has sent me? And God said, You shall say, I am has sent me uh, to you. And he then identified himself in verse 15 as the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he uses an unusual word for said. This is the Hebrew word neum, which is used in prophetic literature to refer to a prophetic oracle from God. And so it emphasizes this is a, had to do with the future. It is related uh, as a prophetic oracle, and he is talking uh, to someone named my Lord. This is a, a divine imperative. Now, there's some debate about the form of the word here. It is Adonai. It, it, it ends with a uh, an I. We would see it in English. Uh, and again, that verb would have been added. Um, I mean, that, that, that vowel would have been added later uh, by the Masoretes. But it is used by someone who is addressing God and using that first person, you are my Lord. In most places, it is used in contexts where a servant is addressing their master or where someone may be in the presence of a king. But it is used in several places like Joshua 5.14 and Judges 6.13 where it is referring, where somebody is addressing the Lord as their personal Lord. We see that with Joshua referring to the angel of the Lord uh, and Joshua 5.14, what does my Lord say to his servant? The angel of the Lord is God who led them in the uh, con- conquest of the Canaanites. And we'll see that in some passages the angel of the Lord is seen as almost synonymous with Yahweh and others. There's a conversation. For example, um, but he's seen his deity by Gideon in Judges 6.13 when he addresses the angel, the Malach of Yahweh, says, uh, O oh my Lord, Adonai, the same form that we have in Psalm 110, says, If the Lord, Yahweh, is with us, why then has all this happened to us? But how do we know that he recognizes that the angel of the Lord is indeed a, just a theophany of God? And that is because just a a few verses later where he's still engaged in the same conversation with the angel of the Lord, Gideon says, Alas, O Lord, using the other form of the word with a different ending, uh, Adonai, a y And so this is what happens. You have this, this different perspective. But Zechariah says that the angel always said, speak to the Lord of the armies, uh, Yahweh Sabaoth, that um, indicates that this is two personages. So when we translate this as the oracle of Yahweh to my Adonai, uh, this is someone who has a great position and is told to sit at his right hand until something comes to pass. Until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is Jesus who has ascended and God the Father says sit at my right hand and he is a position of sitting now waiting for something. He's waiting until he, it is the right time for him for the kingdom. This position of being seated at one's right hand is a position of significance, a position of authority, a position of power and respect, and this is indicated in 219 when someone uh, tells his his mother to sit at his right hand. It is a position of of respect. Uh, It's also told to us in Revelation 321 that Jesus said, um, that to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That's the only time there's a reference to Jesus and a throne in Revelation. It's because this is yet future. He does receive that throne, we believe, until the end of that seven-year period we call the tribulation. And it is during that time that this next part is fulfilled uh, when his enemies are made his footstool. The word stool is used six times in the Old Testament, always with the word foot or feet. And the image is that are trolling foot and forced into submission based on Joshua ten twenty four. So this is the, the, the first part. The next piece that we're putting together uh, as we look at this is that Jesus is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is seated there waiting for the next thing. So what we learn from this is the future Messiah King is fully divine. He is undiminished deity, equivalent to Yahweh. He is the, for now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father in uh, the second part of the verse. And in the first, in the last part of the verse, he is to await a future victory. So then Yahweh tells him, sit at my right hand. The Lord will stretch forth your strong set from Zion and say, rule in the midst of your enemies. This is something future. He's going to come and he will have to violently suppress his enemies and take command and control the earth to establish the messianic kingdom. Psalm 110 verse 3 tells him that he will have an army of volunteers with him. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. And your people, I believe, either refers to the Jewish people. Because when you go through the Old Testament and you look at how God uses the phrase over and over again, my people, my people, my people who are called by my name, it's always referring to, uh, to the Jewish people. And we know from prophecy that there will be a time when they will come and turn to the Lord and he will come to deliver them. This verse reads, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness. And then there's this phrase that's used that just really doesn't make a lot of sense. From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. This is that line that I told you this was uh, when you punctuated it with different vowels, different meaning. But if you punctuate it with a different set of vowels, uh, it says, from the womb of the dawn... That is just the beginning of, before the beginning of time. I have begotten there's that word begotten that we talked about from when we sang, "O oh, come all ye faithful earlier and we were t- talking about the Lord's table. Al Ross says the begotten's literal sense refers to a child who shares the nature of the Father, as opposed to words like made or created. To describe Jesus as begotten indicates that he has the nature of the Father. That is, divine and eternal. And if he is eternal, then begotten refers to nature not a beginning. This description is figurative. That's why the Nicene Creed clarifies the point, Jesus is begotten and not made. When Scripture uses begotten in that sense, the expression includes only, monogenes is the Greek word, the only begotten. There is only one person who shares the divine nature of the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we have this quote from Hebrews ten, twelve, and eighteen, but this man referring to Jesus after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting until his enemies are his footstool. So picture Hebrews is written in the sixties of the first century. He is he is waiting until that time when his enemies are made his footstool. The other verse that's important is Psalm hundred and ten four The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek so one sitting at his right hand is also a priest. He is a king priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was the king priest of Salem, ancient Jerusalem, when Abraham returned from defeating the five armies of the, uh, that came in from the area of Babylon. And uh, after Abraham defeats them, he gives a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek as a tribute and offering to God. So that verse emphasizes that God promises a future royal high priest that is a future everlasting eternal high priest. So then what happens is he will come uh, to defeat the enemies of Yahweh. During this intervening period, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we're awaiting the giving of the kingdom. We're not in the kingdom now. It's not a fear for the kingdom, which is what amillennialists believe. It's not a kingdom we are to bring in, which is what postmillennialists bring in. Uh, it is a kingdom that Christ will bring in when he returns at the second coming. And a second, like him, our role is related to our royal priesthood in him. We are to carry out our priestly duties, our priestly the Great Commission, evangelism, teaching the Word of God, being equipped for service, prayer, and ministering to one another in the church. Next time we'll come back, and we will connect the uh, the, the Psalm 110 to Psalm 2, and also Daniel chapter 7, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, if so we can understand. Uh, These prophecies from the uh, Old Testament, prophecies made hundreds of years before uh, Jesus was born, prophecies that were fulfilled in him uh, when he came, when he entered into human history, and for the purpose of dying on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin as that great sin sacrifice depicted by the Passover lamb, the lamb that was without spot or blemish, who was our paschal lamb our sacrifice the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world father we thank you for the opportunity we have to study these things and to understand our role as described in scripture significance of this role and our future uh, destiny with the lord father we pray that you would help us to understand these things and put them together And, Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here or anyone listening online or listening to the future, that as they contemplate what we are teaching, that they might come to understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah who came to die on the cross for the sins of the world, as depicted through the various sacrifices and rituals in the Old Testament, and that salvation is not based on who we are or what we've done. It's based on who Jesus Christ is, simply believing that he is who he said he was, and that he did what he said he would do, and that is to die for us, that through him we might have everlasting life. Father, now we thank you for this service and uh, pray too for this coming meal that we will enjoy together, that you will bless and sanctify this food. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.